Welcome back to the leading edge of integrative mental health. I'm your host, Lisa Dale Miller. Please review and subscribe to the Groundless Ground podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Radio.com, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, and of course, find out more at GroundlessGround.com. I'm ready to go. How about you? Dr. Stuart Shanker is a world-renowned author, researcher, and scholar on self-regulation science and creator of the groundbreaking self-reg method for cultivating mental and physical well-being. His life's work has focused on the beneficial role that positive stress plays in children's development and learning and the harmful effects of excessive negative stress on parents, educators, and children. His new book, Reframed, Self-Reg for a Just Society, explores self-regulation in wider social terms and unpacks the unique science and conceptual practices that are the very lifeblood of the self-reg method. I've been a big proponent of self-reg and recommend the books and website resources to patients struggling with poor parenting skills and child behavioral problems. Dialoguing with Dr. Shanker was simultaneously humbling and affirming. He felt like both a kindred spirit and a wise elder. This episode presents a doable path for healing societal distress and discord by bravely, collectively solving the existential crises of our time. Stuart Shanker, this is a deep honor for me. You have been a profoundly useful resource for myself (laughs) and my patients. It's interesting, your book, Self-Reg, has only been out since 2016, which is a little shocking for me because I feel like I've been handing people the resources for longer than that. I actually wrote a trilogy. The first one is called Alert and Learning. But that one was really written for teachers. Self-Reg, the second book, was written for parents. Your new book, Reframed, Self-Reg for a Just Society, is profoundly important because it has the brain science. I guess you, like me, like to share brain science with (laughs) your patients and the parents that you work with. I think they find it very useful. I think that they find it fascinating. So before we go into the new book, Reframed, I think it would be good, maybe, if you could just give a succinct description of what self-reg is and why it's so different and why you felt it was important for parents as a parenting method. Let me give a two-part answer to that question because it's a good question. Looking back on it, it strikes me now that the 1990s was this decade of extraordinary excitement. One of the things that had happened was we had developed new imaging technologies that allowed us to see deep inside the brain. When I was in grad school, we only talked about the surface of the brain, the prefrontal, but now we could see the limbic system and we could see just how vital subcortical processes, these processes below the threshold of conscious awareness, which is very important to both you and me, this idea that there are deep limbic processes which really do shape how we think and how we act. Now, I had been trained for many years at Oxford in something called self-regulation. This will make you laugh, but we actually did a study on this around five years ago. 
there are 447 different definitions of self-regulation. <laughs> I had but, no idea. Yes, but 446 of them are variations on the theme of self-control. But that is not actually what the term originally meant. So this is an idea that was developed by Walter Bradford Cannon at the beginning of the 20th century. And uh, he had this model of homeostasis. So just to explain, homeostasis means that everything's in sync. Our system, it has an operating range where it can deal with stresses. Cannon's basic idea was that this system, this stress system, which he called the stress system, ranges from cellular and molecular processes all the way up to how we think and act. How we think and act, he calls a feed-forward mechanism. And what he meant by that was we can anticipate certain stresses and we can take preventative or adaptive measures. Or, he thought, we know when we're being overstressed and can respond accordingly. In fact, he was wrong about the latter point because his neuroscience hadn't developed enough. But the important point in his model was that you can be dysregulated at the very lowest levels of the system and not realize this until it suddenly bursts into consciousness with illness or... The way I developed self-reg was with Canon in mind, uh, with a heavy dose of Stanley Greenspan, Stan trained me in psychiatry. The original definition that Cannon had of self-regulation was simply how we manage stress. That's all it meant. Whereas stress is anything that requires the brain to burn energy in order to maintain homeostasis. The idea behind self-reg is that we have to learn how to recognize when we ourselves are overstressed or when a child or a teen is overstressed. So we begin step one with reframing. And that means learning how to distinguish between, say, misbehavior and stress behavior. What are the signs of stress behavior? Once we know that something is a stress behavior, whether it's in ourselves or another, then we have to become a stress detective. And that's step two. Identify what the stresses are. And stress is a very complex phenomenon. Again, we did a big study on this, and we came up with close to a thousand different stresses. That's kind of unmanageable. So we did what's called a factor analysis, and we grouped them into five kinds of stress, physical, emotional, cognitive. Cognitive is a very interesting one. That's kind of the point of reframe just to explain what cognitive stress is for children. Social, and then finally pro-social, being a decent human being. We begin with physical stress. We always begin with physical stress. Uh, and so maybe you're talking about, you know, temperature. I read something very interesting that's close to, I believe, where you live. Uh, I'm not sure what part of California you're in. Did you see the National Geographic study of Los Angeles? There's this one street that runs right through LA, and it goes from the upper socioeconomic strata down to the bottom. And there is a 12-degree differential between the wealthy part of the street and the poor part of the street. But this is a big deal because one of the processes that we study in self-reg is called restoration, uh, which again is where you and I are primarily focused. Biologically, restoration demands that the body temperature drops below 85 degrees at night. So what that means is people at the lower end of this street are not restoring even when they're sleeping. So this brings us to sort of the long-term effects of stress. 
I'm thinking forward about 40 to 50 years exactly. many places exactly. on the planet will be, I'm going to use centigrade, 40, 45 degrees yes. centigrade all the time and unlivable. One of the things that we've now learned is, and this is incredibly important for the work we do in, with schools, you can take a kid you can use punishment or raise your voice or some form of restraint and the child becomes very quiet very subdued and you think well geez now the kid is paying attention but if you can peer below the surface if you could hook that child up to some of the uh, systems that we use to study stress you find that their heart is beating like crazy uh, their blood pressure has gone up they have something called cortical arousal and so what it tells us is that on the outside the child may look like the child's being compliant, but on the inside, that kid is in what's called heightened sympathetic arousal. And those problems may show up right away. They may show up in 10 years. They may show up in 40 years, but they will show up. So with self-reg, what we're trying to do is we're trying to help parents through step three. So once we've you know, sort of figured out, you know, okay, so now I, I'm beginning to understand my kid's actually demonstrating some stress behaviors and I can see it. You have a wonderful line in your book where you talk about the therapist has to see your client's eyes, see their facial complexion. Yeah. Well, parents can do the same. When they do that, when they hear the pitch, the tone of voice of their child, they can actually hear when the child's overstressed. Now, step three of self-reg is we're going to begin to lower the stresses. And how we do that depends on every kid is different. Step four is sort of the pivotal step of self-reg. You know, you sort of get a sense here. What we're looking for is we're leading up to becoming calm. And that's what step four is. And what we've found in our own work is a generation of kids who really are never calm, uh, don't know what calmness is. Suppose their parents say, well, you know, you've got to go to your room, you know, just take it easy. But instead, restoring, instead of getting into that place where your tension comes down and your energy starts to replenish, Instead, they go on to something that will give them a dopamine shot. If we can get them to calm, that's not the goal. The goal is actually step five. And step five is restoration. And restoration for us, we look at it biologically. So we're looking at a system called the parasympathetic system, which when it's activated, and we do some pretty tricky neuroscience to explain why, when and why it's activated, what it does is it repairs cells it reduces the demands on the immune system. It kickstarts the digestive system, all these rest and restoration processes. But parasympathetic restoration is a sort of two-sided coin. On the one hand, you're having these physiological effects, but the psychological or the subjective side of this is you feel at peace, content. You feel emotions like awe. This morning, I'm actually working on racism and when you get to that parasympathetic state, you feel something that every infant has, and that's the shared sense of humanity. So that's the five steps of self-reg, and that's really what I was aiming for with the last book, Reframed. As a society, we desperately need to restore. Yes, and I think it's fitting that you start the book with resonance. I thought we could talk about both the biological necessity for human animals of social engagement, as well as tribal resonance and holding. And maybe that could take us into the neuroscience that I think 
parents don't know about their infants, how little capacity they have to do things like regulate the autonomic nervous system, yep. to have shivering responses. And yes. I, I think this is all so important, particularly new parents. I actually have two patients who had babies within a week of each other in the last two months. And I am watching these two patients go through this process uh, with two very different children, very different temperaments. That first stage of infancy, maybe into toddler, how parents can provide containment and resonance for them. Geez, there's so much in what you just said. <laughs> You've just summarized in one paragraph, the heart of reframed. So let's see if we can break it down a little. There was a discovery made in 1944, totally ignored, and it was rediscovered in 78 by Stephen Jay Gould. This is always shocking for parents to hear this. I'll tell you why we think this is the case in a second. And the idea is that all babies, all human babies are born premature. Not just the preemies, but every infant is really still a fetus outside the womb for around the first six months to a year. So why do we think that? We think it because um, what they discovered was the size of the female cervix has not changed in the past 3 million years. We became bipedal around 3 million years ago. In fact, we started to become bipedal 5 million years ago, but we became bipedal as a species, as humans, 3 million years ago. And bipedalism was huge. It gave us all kinds of advantages, particularly we could use our hands. But the problem for nature was there's only so big a cervix that the female could have and still remain bipedal. Nature just loved having this big brain creature. And the solution was a very simple one. You give birth to the infant at 40 weeks, and then with each successive human species, the brain gets bigger and bigger as they're adults. And that tells us that most of the brain growth is occurring after birth, postnatally. Yeah. And so we now believe there is, at the moment of parturition, this explosion of brain growth. 700 new synapses form every single second, okay? And that goes on for a couple of years. And it's amazingly important for our ability as a species to adapt to all different kinds of environments, including cultural environments. But the baby is really still a fetus, completely unable to self-regulate in that sort of canon sense of taking preventative measures. This raises a really interesting question for us. If you want to talk about a baby is still being a fetus, a fetus outside the womb, that was CMJ Gould's famous term, what replaces the umbilical cord? And the answer is something that we now call the interbrain. The interbrain is a sort of wireless connection. Uh, between the parent's limbic system, and that's that system we talked about at the beginning, deep inside the brain, between the parent's limbic system and the baby's limbic system. We refer to it as a, like a Bluetooth connection, a wireless connection that is maintained through all five of the senses, smell, touch, sight, etc. What the parent is doing is literally sensing, feeling when the baby is overstressed. We'll take a very simple example. The baby's cold, baby starts to shiver. Maybe even before that, the parent sees a change in skin color and parent puts a blanket on the baby. Why is that such a big deal? It's a big deal because of what I said about stress. Stress is anything that causes us to burn energy. So here we have a case where the stress of the cold is causing the baby to burn a lot of energy. 
Shivering is the micromuscular vibrations that generate heat as a byproduct. Very expensive. Think about a little baby. They don't have that much glucose to begin with. What's happening is they're using up quite a lot of their glucose to maintain a stable internal temperature. But that's a problem. And the reason it's a problem is because they need energy. They need glucose for other things. They need it to grow. They need it for their immune system. The problem is that if left to themselves, the premature baby will be spending way too much of their glucose on external stresses. There's a wonderful study that was done on this by Greenspan and Porges. Steve Porges is, of course, the scientist behind polyvagal theory. And they went into a neonatal intensive care unit. And what they did was they lowered the stresses in that environment. So they turned off the lights. They stopped all the beeping alarms. And what they found mm. was that babies were discharged in half the amount of time. This is a vital role that parents play in the early years of life, regulating our child because they cannot do it themselves. Now, how do they do that? And the second point that you made, which is huge, is through this phenomenon called limbic resonance. And the reason we call it limbic resonance, I don't remember who was the guy who, who discovered this. It could have been Shore or Myronhofer. But what, basically what they found was that systems in the parent's limbic system vibrate at the same frequency as systems in the babies. Mm -hmm. So it's literally resonance like a tuning fork resonance. They yeah. are resonating to stress. Co-resonance. Yeah. Co-resonance. Very nice term. Somewhere around, I believe, between the ages of three and four, something interesting begins to happen. For psychologists, we talk about this as a sort of critical point at which the children start to develop what we call a theory of mind. And I think what's going on is through their co-resonance, the children are beginning to identify, they're being conditioned with associations that identify members of my group, the within group, and members of the other group. So how does a parent communicate this? And it's done limbic to limbic. We're not aware of even doing it. Let's say we're talking about racism. So our, our tone of voice changes. If we're afraid or anxious, our tone of voice goes up and our speech becomes faltering. If we're angry, we speak louder and faster. Through these, what are called affect cues, we are wiring our child's limbic system. Remember, this is below the surface. We're wiring their limbic system to identify these are the members of our group. These are the members of the other group. We have this limbic resonance throughout our life with all other limbic systems. And we always have integrate. However, something very interesting happens when we are dealing with, let's say, a group in our society that we have persecuted. What happens is we stop seeing them as human beings. Right. This, for psychologists, we call this a form of dissociation. It's actually what we call a maladaptive mode of self-regulation, meaning we're dealing with the stress that we feel. I don't know if I'm explaining this well, but we, we have this stress. We're persecuting someone. And we have limbic resonance with them. They're a fellow human being. This is very stressful for us at some level. So we deal with that stress by no longer seeing them as a human being. We become blind. It's a form of interbrain blindness to stop the limbic resonance. And there's all kinds of examples of this. 
I'm really interested in what you're saying, because in my mind, I am tying this to the difference between learning brain and survival brain. So what yeah. I'm hearing you say is yeah, that there is a form of hyperarousal that actually occurs with yeah. the dissociation and the yes. dehumanizing and the disconnection. And that even in the learning, and when you say learning, I am assuming, because we have a neocortex, this isn't just limbic, this is Yes. Okay, now I have these yes. images and the yes. six layers of the prefrontal yes. cortex. I am learning information that is creating a subcortical hyperarousal yes. that I'm yes. not aware of in yes. my system yes. in the actual act of social resonance. So it seems like it would be very hard for a child to be learning socially with a child they've been taught is different than them. And that they immediately go into survival mode, which means they don't have the capacity to really learn who they are in real time. Am I that's, making bad connections? No, that's perfect. One of the things we see with kids is if they haven't been exposed to this kind of learning, uh, and so as a psychologist, I'll refer to it as conditioning. Absolutely. One of the most interesting findings that we've made in the study of all this is as adults, when we are shown a photograph of the outsider group, that's a member that's not part of our group, the amygdala becomes hyper aroused. And that's been replicated over and over. The amygdala is our alarm system. And so really what it's saying is uh, exactly what you were describing. This is a threat now. We see at some deep level that outsider is a threat, a threat to my personal security or safety, and also by extension, a threat to my group. So these are threat responses. But what I loved about what you said is that this is learned. And so what it tells us is a couple of things. First of all, it tells us that before this is learned, there is this universal, what I call a universal interbrain mechanism, meaning that we are wired before the learning starts. And I don't think the learning really becomes significant until around the ages of three to four. For the first couple of years, we're just going to resonate with everybody. It's like the universal language mechanism. But we unlearn that. We begin to superimpose on that. First, I think it's through the limbic system, and then I think you're dead right. Then we get into the rationalizations and the polygenism. However, it tells us something hopeful. I just finished reading Jill Lepore's book, These Truths. It's a very good book and a very depressing book. Mm. So here we have a case where from 1783 on, the U.S. has struggled with racism. And we've had some incredibly wonderful, eloquent radical enlighteners speaking about universal brotherhood, but look where we are today. And so what it tells us is that certain aspects of what we say and what we write are critical. So we have to show people that say something like the concept of race is a myth. There's no serious biologist today who believes there's such a thing as race. If I'm dealing with someone who at a deep level of their limbic system has these threat reactions, what I say or what I write doesn't seem to have much effect. So somehow, what I have to do is tap into these buried, implicit, universal interbrain mechanism. And that's, I believe, what happens through restoration. A good buddy of mine is Alan Fogel. So Alan writes about, you know, how when you're in that parasympathetic re restoration, you feel that sense of bliss. You feel that sense of peace. 
But I also think that when you're in that state, you feel that sense of universal brotherhood. So what we have to do, we have to make people like you have an even louder voice because it's not just a case of helping the, you know, the families that you work with, but the society itself will tear itself apart. It's a society that needs restoration, that needs that sense of turning off these massive external stresses, political stresses or whatever, so that the society itself can restore this interbrain resonance, which we've suppressed or blocked, will naturally resurface. I think we need both. I think we need both the blue brain and the red brain in self-right theory. So I can pull all of this back to parent-child by quoting you. One of your great quotes is, there's no such thing as a bad kid. So it's almost as though stereotyping the hatred comes up in the parent-child relationship because the stress response in the child is being misunderstood by the parent. We both know self-regulation is a skill that children need to master, but honestly, in my world, I think the parents <laughs> haven't mastered self-regulation. So how the hell can a child ever be modeled it or learn it? Let's go from there. I tell a wonderful story in the second book, in self This is a family, a mother that came to us. She had a 13-year-old daughter. And it had been a very, very intimate, close relationship between mother and daughter until puberty hit. And all kinds of things changed for the child when she hit puberty. She had been a star athlete. She was a gymnast. Suddenly quit because, you know, being teased by other girls for being too butch. Problem was that she was a child with a lot of hypersensitivity. Well, for example, she was very sensitive to smells, I remember. And we had to make sure that nobody was wearing uh, perfume. Through the gymnastics, what she was doing was she was regulating herself, creating all those wonderful neurohormones that will have a soothing, calming effect on the nervous system. So by quitting gymnastics cold turkey, she had removed her primary source of self-regulation, as well as now she's exposed to so many new stresses, you know, the stresses of the brain changing, the social stresses, and so on. And mom and daughter were fighting for the first time in their lives. They'd begun to fight every night. These weren't just ordinary fights. They were happening at bedtime and going on for two hours until mother just stormed out. And I remember the mom saying to us one day, she wanted to have a divorce from her child. What we said to mom was, you know, we're going to try a different approach. You're not going to say anything to your kid. When they're in what's called red brain and self-reg. So the limbic system is running the show. They're in really heightened arousal. They're not thinking through what they're saying. They're using language as a form of displaced behavior, it's called. So what we want to do is we want to calm her amygdala. That's, that's our primary goal. And we're not going to explain anything. In fact, talking to a child that's in red brain is a stress in itself for the child and for the parent. So what we wanted mom to do was belly breathing as one of our core techniques. So we wanted her the next time there was an explosion uh, starting, we wanted to short circuit it by getting mom to ground herself, to calm herself, because you cannot calm a child if you're not calm. And it happened within a, a very short time of seeing us, the child had asked for a pink hoodie, which is very popular up in Canada. Mom had gone and the store, of course, was sold out of the pink ones and they only had gray ones left. So mom bought a gray one. 
this created a god-awful fight. And mom, she'd gone at her lunch hour just to buy this for the kids. So she was furious. But the doctor said, you're not allowed to say anything. So she goes out into the hall and she does her deep breathing and she calms down and she goes back in. The kid is now lying on her bed. Mom turns off the light. We told her one of the things we love to do when a child's gone red brain, this is a pre-social state in the triune brain model that we use. This is a primitive state. The reptilian brain is a pre-language, pre-interbrain state. It's a state for singletons. So we got to bring her back into the social state. So we said to mom, what we want you to do is when she was a little kid, did she like to be scratched? And that's not uncommon. And we want you to scratch her, you know, on her shoulder or on her hand, but you can't do it without permission because if you do it without permission, it's an assault. And now you've got a problem. And the problem is if she's in this pre-linguistic state and I ask her, would you like me to, you won't get an answer. But one of the things that doesn't shut down is the nonverbal communication. That's right side, right brain. We suggested to mom, ask your daughter to raise a finger or even better, put your finger inside her fist and ask her, would you like a scratch? If you would, squeeze. So she does it and the kid squeezes. Mom is now, she progresses from scratching gently on the arm. She goes to the back and the kid, she can feel the kid melting. Just as you can feel as a, you know, when you have a newborn or, or an infant, you can feel them melting in your arms. So remember, these are fights that were going on for hours. After 15 minutes, the kid says, I want to sleep now. This is huge, not just because it's so fast, but also because she's used language. So we've brought her back into the social connection. So mom overwhelmed a little bit by all this. And then as she gets up to leave, the kid says, I love you, mommy. Now, that's very interesting because what we've done is we've tapped into that very early limbic association where mommy gave us that feeling of safety and security. So mom goes out in the hall and now she's kind of overwhelmed by pro-social guilt. She should have bought the pink one. And so she's all set to say to her daughter, well, we're going to go after school. I'll take you to, there's another big mall in Pickering and we'll find the pink hoodie. But the child comes downstairs smiling wearing the gray hoodie. So the stress wasn't what we thought. Right. But what we find when we can get to calm is that there's an awful lot going on in this little kid's life. What she needs is like that little infant. She is overwhelmed by stresses and it's beyond her ability to deal with all this stress. Really what she was saying with all those fights was cry for help. That's the model that we had in mind for reframe, for the idea for what society does. Uh, We have to recover now. And I think, by the way, you've had some incredible figures in in your society doing just this. But now it's time for this to become universal. The whole society has to calm down now and realize that at some deep level, we truly do need limbic resonance. Yeah, it's so interesting how this conversation, we're sort of going in and out of the collective and the personal, which of course, because we're tribal animals, that's something that's going to happen. You know, humans have this funny pickiness when it comes to love. We tend to pick objects for love and care. And then we say, this object deserves love and care, but we don't extend it out in a non-referential way to include 
other objects. And this is one of the reasons why I think modern humans are so disconnected from the natural environment in which yeah. we are nurtured, in which we rely, except we don't experience that relation. So there's something about developing stress awareness for the environment in which we live Agreed. and recognizing the stress awareness. And what I loved about your story was there had to be contact between two yes. autonomic nervous systems, direct yes. contact yes. for both people to communicate in a yes. subcortical way. Yes. It's Agreed. the subcortical that yes. is the magic. And I yes. do believe it's the subcortical for us as humans when we, for instance, walk in nature. We are talking to all the plants around us, but we're not doing it through language. We're actually doing it in our embodied existence through all the subcortical, the cellular mechanisms in which humans connect directly. So when I'm asked for ideas for how we can restore, so I talk about the obvious ones, meditation, or which I do regularly. I live on an island, and every day I take what I call an extraception bath. Oh, a long time ago, I invented my own particular term for the conversation between a human, myself, and nature as the extranet. I think this is something uh, deep inside the brain. When I take my, my extraception bath, I really do focus on all of my senses. It's quite astonishing for me how oblivious I was to everything that was going on around me. So now not only do I hear the birds or whatever, but I also, I feel and I smell the wind. I smell the oxygen. What happens after my bath? It's a very interesting thing. I become a kinder person and I'm like every other father. I can be a real jerk. A wonderful example of this two nights ago. Uh, I won't go into details, but I have a 16-year-old daughter who is like all 16-year-old daughters. <laughs> and I was not a self-reg dad at all. I went out and I had an extra reception bath because I knew I needed to calm down. And suddenly the empathy that had turned off came back online. And I realized that what was really going on had nothing to do with what she was saying. It was like the gray hoodie all over again. I hadn't listened. And here we talk about listening as listening with our eyes as well as with our ears. I hadn't listened to her. And then, of course, I felt awful. So I went back to her to apologize and once again was overwhelmed by something about children that we don't pay enough credit to. They are unbelievably forgiving. And what was really weird about all this was she had resisted doing something just like the kid with the gray hoodie. And then last night, the very thing she had resisted doing, she went and did. Uh, and I hadn't said anything. What she had come to me for was she wanted to tell me, and it was a social and emotional stress that was huge. And I didn't listen to it. When I do extraception, what I find is not only do I begin to hear all these different birds, I begin to hear human beings. I can listen again. That's such a great example of reframing. So that's the point. One of the things that we try to help parents understand, I'll give you a great example. We hold a summer symposium, our organization. So last week I talked about obesity. Obesity is the perfect example of everything we've been talking about today. We tend to look at this as, you know, you have weak self-control. Stop yourself from eating. 
But if you read the biologists, there's been a revolution in our understanding of obesity. And in fact, the guy I love is a guy called George Krusos, who used to be at the NIH and now it's gone back to Greece. And so what Krusos says is that the cause of obesity has nothing to do with self-control or willpower. It's hypocortisolism. What that means is too much cortisol in the bloodstream. Okay, so then the question is, why is there too much cortisol in the bloodstream? If you have hypercortisolism, it causes all kinds of changes in the body. It causes abdominal fat. We have a neurohormone that tells us uh, when we need energy, when to eat, and it disrupts this. The cause of hypercortisolism is, of course, too much stress. So if you have something like uh, obesity epidemic in the U.S., which you do, it's telling us you really actually have a stress epidemic. But here's the thing that kind of blows everybody away. These changes occur at the cellular level before you're aware of this. By the time you become aware, metabolic syndrome has become entrenched. Now, there are things that we can do about this, but really what we want to do is we want to head it off at the pass. You said something a second ago that really I think is the sort of pivotal point for parents. Suppose now that you're dealing with any kind of addictive behavior, whatever it is. I'll tell you what mine is. I have been fighting an addiction to CNN. Okay. And I know it's not good for me. Oh, I'll just do with you what I do with my patients. Yeah. So what is it you think you're getting from CNN? Remember, I'm a self-reg guru. <laughs> so yes. I decided I'm going to analyze this. Uh, CNN gives you a shot of dopamine. And dopamine is wonderful. Yak Panksep, the great uh, affective oh, neuroscientist. Yes. So Yak yes. used to, so Yak was a buddy, and he used to talk about it. You know that we've got a, we've created a generation of kids that are ingenious at finding ways to hit that dopamine pump. What we want to do is reframe. I've got the impulse to watch CNN, whatever it is. Our culture tells us that what we're supposed to do, damp that down, use your willpower, but. That doesn't work. In fact, it makes things worse. So instead, what I want to do is I'm going to reframe it. And that means the impulse is actually a wonderful way of telling me when I have dipped low into energy and high intention. We don't have an energy tension gauge. We have to learn what it is. That's the whole point of your work. And so my impulse is telling me you've dipped down. So we tell our parents, let's try three minutes of belly breathing. Okay, so let's just stick with that. At the end of the three minutes, ask yourself, do you still want to see CNN? Now with me, three minutes of belly breathing is enough. That impulse is gone. It just disappears. But if the impulse is still there, okay, go ahead. But maybe first before you do one more session of belly breathing, because we want parents to be kind to themselves as much as kind to their children. And don't beat yourself up with your impulses, but recognize that the impulses are your secret to understanding what is happening at the cellular level. Happy to report that I am over my CNN addiction. <laughs> I am no longer a CNN addict. Wonderful. So did you ever figure out what it was you thought you were getting? So I think what happens is you get a sense of urgency. In my case, what has Trump done in the last 20 minutes? Well, thankfully, we don't have to worry about that anymore. Uh, one of the things that's very hard for anyone to understand is a point that Steve Poor just explained beautifully. You threw out a term that's pretty important to us. 
So we have an autonomic nervous system that was designed for hunting. And so we distinguish between two states of the ANS, ergotropic and trophotropic. What's happened in ergotropic is we are stimulating the production of cortisol to tap into our energy so that we can hunt. Humans, when they settled in the original human species, Homo habilis, they could use that same mechanism, that ergotropic mechanism to make tools, to problem solve. So when we think in neuroscience, we talk about when we use the task positive network, the TPN. When we do that, we are actually in the same ergotropic state that we were in when we hunted. We're using the same mechanism. When we look at children that are struggling in school, what we notice is their whole body is tense. The problem isn't that they're lazy. They're not working hard enough. They're working too hard. They're burning enormous amounts of glucose. And we have to figure out why if we're going to help them. You know, I spend a lot of my time in deep concentration and I'm in an ergotropic state and I'm not aware of it. I'm not aware of tensing my gut. What the impulse is telling me is back up a moment, buddy. Mm. You've been doing this too long. Really what it was is I lost touch with myself. And so now when I'm reframing, I'm seeing you better get back in touch. That's why I mentioned to you, I got sick because of COVID. Uh, the stresses were too high. This is a complicated issue, and it has to do with, again, various systems in the brain that turn on and off. I mentioned at the outset that Cannon was wrong in one respect, and you nodded and you said yes. And where he was wrong was he thought that we are aware of when we're overstressed. Exactly. My right. theory is that humans were more embodied because I we agree. had to be I agree. embodied. Uh, I'll just mention Alan Fogel's last book is about this, Restorative Embodiment. We are a society that really has lost touch with ourselves. One of the points that we make with teachers all the time is because we're trying to help kids. We really do believe there's no such thing as a bad kid. Our problem is I can't get a teacher or any kind of adult to listen, listen in that big capital L, listen to a child, unless they can listen to themselves, unless they can listen to their own body. So when we talk about self-reg, the self-reg, it starts with self. It is astonishing to us. Every symposium that we run, the very first day or two, we spend just on personal self-regulation. We are a terribly overstressed society and really out of touch with it. It's true. I had the most kind of devastating phone call yesterday <laughs> from someone who reached out to me and heard about the trauma work I do. And often I work with women who are in the midst of pregnancy and they have trauma memory come up. The first thing this person tells me is that they're working 16 hours a day. Wow. And they're six months pregnant. Wow. Really, I live in Silicon Valley. Said it without any problem. And that wasn't why they called me. They called me because they were concerned about the flashbacks they were having. And this is somebody who's already working with a therapist who doesn't do the somatic experiencing work that I do. So sometimes I'll get people who have another therapist and they need the SE work. So I only do that with them. And it didn't take more than 10 minutes for both of us to realize that I wasn't the right person for her because I already was asking her to look at certain things she was not even aware of that would be unsafe for the fetus. 
So she wanted confirmation that she could keep going with the 16 hours? It was just deeply disturbing, I think, for her to have me mentioning things that I saw of concern that might have been giving rise to the phenomena that she was concerned about. It's an incredible story. Toward the end of your book, The Philosopher You Are, you open the dialogue to freedom and what it looks like to have freedom arise from both the regulation as well as the embodiment and the wisdom and compassion that arise from those, which of course is right up my alley. So I thought maybe you'd want to talk a little bit about how hypersubcorticality can get in the way of freedom. And I believe this person was basically completely gripped in that and had so lost what's really a priority in that person's life at this time, which would not be working 16 hours a day, six months pregnant. No, for what? This is a big topic. So people have to read chapter nine. (laughs) Uh, When I was at Oxford, we had what are called a moral tutor, very quaint Oxford tradition. But my moral tutor was Isaiah Berlin. Do you know who Isaiah Berlin was? The great liberal political theorist of our times. Oh, wow. So I used to argue with him all the time because I thought he'd missed the boat. The theory of homeostasis. When I talk about homeostasis, I am talking about the same thing that Lisa is talking about when she's talking about somatic regulation. So that theory was actually invented by a Frenchman. Claude Bernard wrote a book in 1865 in which he says homeostasis, he calls it eternal milieu, is the foundation of freedom. This is the exact opposite of 2,000 or 2,500 years of thinking about freedom as you make the right choice and you force those on your body. If my body is having flashbacks, I will force it not to have flashbacks. Bernard's point was, is that in fact, freedom is bottom up. We are only free if we are in what you call that state of somatic regulation. Then what happens is we have the capacity to choose The person who's in the grip of the 16 hours is under a compulsion or a number of compulsions, and there is no choice. There is no choosing, and there is a cost. My big fear, and I'll let you be the one to answer this, my big fear is that we will be seeing a societal PTSD as a result of what's happened over the last, do you think so? We're already seeing it. You cannot imagine what it was like prior to COVID. At least in Silicon Valley, a lot of people are experiencing collective PTSD from Donald Trump. I want to end on a note of hope, okay? And here's my note of hope. Uh, Have you heard of implicit bias training? Yes, of course. Okay. All right. So one of the most interesting discoveries that has been made in implicit bias training. So here what we're talking about is becoming aware of our subcortical primes, the things that we've been conditioned to think things that are below the surface, uh, but that we can become aware of. One of the most interesting discoveries they've made, when you take a group of diverse individuals who have no sense of shared group identity, and you expose them to a common threat, they become a unified group. Yes. (laughs) When aliens show up. The aliens landed, and the aliens in this case are the pandemic is a global threat. Global warming is a global threat. 
We have to build on the awareness that we are actually all in the same lifeboat. My sense of hope is that I imagine that you must have felt over the last, before this year, that you must have felt like you were hitting your head against a wall. But things are changing now. There's receptivity now. And it's getting to be more and more. So that's why I'm hopeful. And it's the same with the kids that we work with. So we take these kids that are on a terrible trajectory. And what we discover is that you can always change a child's trajectory. Always. And if I can change a child's trajectory, I have to believe I can also change my society's trajectory. And I also believe if we don't do it now, then we're screwed. So don't stop what you're doing. (laughs) Don't stop what you're doing. I think that now is the time when you will not feel like you're hitting your head against the wall, that there are people listening, that the podcast is growing, that people are sharing now, because I think people want two things. One, they want the sense of hope. But two, they want to have a sense, well, what do I actually do? What can I do to change things around for myself or for my kid? And you and I are pretty good on the what to do. Well, I could quote you again. You say, a free mind is capable of choosing carefully, if not wisely. It is not self-control that makes such rationality possible. It is mindfulness. And when we say mindfulness, we actually mean presence. Yes. And that's what I believe. And that's what I believe as well. Okay, so we are twin souls. Yes, we are. Well, this has just been such a rich and important conversation. I cannot thank you enough for taking what I imagine is an extremely busy schedule, taking some time out of that schedule to honor me with your presence. I have truly enjoyed this and I am now about to go take an extra reception walk. Keep it up, Lisa. (laughs) I will. Thanks for listening to today's show. To get in touch, please visit groundlessground.com. Let's dedicate our efforts to the healing of our planet and all its inhabitants. See you next time on the Groundless Ground.